guys. Happy Wednesday. And thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome presented by DraftKings, an official sports betting partner of the UFC. Download the DraftKings app and use promo code CHAIL to get in on the action coming up on today's show. There's a very troubling situation going on with John Jones. And later, I'll talk about it in detail, but before I get into that, it was a great weekend for our sport, and I'd like to begin today's episode by going back in time to Saturday night, when I gave my immediate thoughts after a great night of fights at UFC 266. Volkanovski versus Ortega, here's what happened. You want to know who the better fighter was? How are you going to, how are you going to define fighter? I know how we define it under the unified rules, who got their hand raised. I understand that. I agree with that. I got that motto. First time I ever heard it was a philosophy from Randy Couture. Randy Couture, you guys have heard of Team Quest, the great Team Quest. Before we were Team Quest, we were called Performance Quest. I want you to hear this story, okay? We were called Performance Quest. We were going to be a fight gym. We are going to be a martial arts club. We had no belt system. On your first day, you are not a white belt, and no longer, nowhere along the way are you going to see a purple or a brown or get recognized with a black. Very reminiscent of the name Performance Quest, Randy maintained, the only thing that matters is your performance. I don't care what you know. I don't care what your skill set is. I don't care what your expertise is. I don't care how long you've been doing it. I want to know how did you do in the contest, your performance. We were on a performance quest. And while that might sound simple, this is what I was influenced by. This is what I was told on my first day in practice. And I was, I was a young man. So it has stayed with me. But I bring it to you because when I watched Ortega tonight versus Volkanovsky, you know who the better fighter was? If you're talking about skill in the traditional sense of who would have a higher color belt in a traditional martial arts sense, the best techniques the best application of those techniques, the best setups of those techniques were all done by Brian Ortega. So how in the hell did he not win the fight? How in the hell did he not win a single round? Well, a lot has changed that they first set that octagon up in 1993. One thing that has not changed, if you get on top of your opponent and you continue to punch him, good things happen. If you get less fatigued then your opponent, good things tend to happen. If you get to a better position more often in the evening than your opponent, good things happen. If you watched Ortega versus Volkanovski and you came away believing the better technique and the better martial arts understanding and craftiness of the disciplines, talk about setups right now, were mastered by the challenger Ortega, you saw what I saw, for sure. It was the intangibles. It's the things that are harder to see. It was the grit. It was the output. I don't believe that we are talking about Volkanovsky as the greatest unarmed combatant in the world at that weight class. I think it's further than that, guys. I think if you had great, I think if Serena Williams was watching, if LeBron James was watching, if Tom Brady was watching, I believe that they would look at Volkanovski and say, my goodness, this is the most fit endurance athlete in sport today. I really believe that. I believe that if those greats that I just named, and you could throw Mayweather in there, you could throw Tiger Woods in there. Think of the most beautiful names and the most successful people in any form of sport that you know. 
If you could get them in a room with Volkanovsky and they knew who he was, they watched and vice versa. I don't think that it would be uh, conversation dominated by Volkanovsky asking them questions. I think it would be the other way around. Alex, I saw your last fight. How did you hold up? Alex, you were the main event. Your teammate Dan Hooker fought on the card. We know what that's like when a teammate has success and you still have two hours before it's your turn to perform. It doesn't help to calm you because momentum's on your side. It puts pressure directly on your chest and you dealt with it. You were given opportunities in a sport based around quitting. You were given opportunities to quit and you said no multiple times. You were being strangled in a topside guillotine by a man who nobody, use a pro wrestling term, nobody's ever kicked out of a Brian Ortega topside guillotine. Not a man alive been putting that that's still around to talk about it. And tell Volkanovsky, I will tell you as a black belt in jiu-jitsu, the technique that Volkanovsky did to defend that topside guillotine against Ortega was wrong. It was not the correct technique. The heart and the toughness and the idea of the mechanics of the position, home run. Perfect. Pull your head back, arch your hips, push on him, try to create space. Get those deep breaths. Every second counts. I might go out, but you also, your hands might give out. You're trying to cut off my neck, but I'm trying to cut off that endurance in your hands. And ultimately, Ortega had to blink first. What does that mean? It means Volkanovski survives that spot. He's still in a precarious position known as a full-side top mount. He's got to get out of it. He does. He comes back to win the damn round. What? How do you do that? And while I just told you the names of the techniques of Ortega, topside guillotine and topside mount, they don't have names what Volkanovski did. Volkanovski got on top and he started swinging. And he started swinging to the face and the head and the chest and the ribs. He started to do damage. He started to wear down and tire out his opponent. That is a competitor. That is a competitor that any athlete, not just fighters, guys, we realize he's the best fighter. That's what that, that damn gold belt's about. I'm talking about as an athlete. Anybody from any sport would watch what Volkanovsky did tonight and stand back and say, sir... Tremendous job. Congratulations. Can you tell me? And then they would start asking him training techniques. You would start asking him about his diet. You would start asking about, uh, about his mindset. You, even as a great athlete, are seeing something remarkable. Remarkable in the drive and the determination. Volkanovski is now not only the world champion. He is not only 10-0 within the octagon. With the likes of Chad Mendez, the likes of Jose Aldo, the likes of Max Holloway times two, the likes of Brian Ortega. He's 20 in all, perfect record overall. The sport's greatest record of anybody meaningful, of course, is that of Khabib at 29. Now, there's a lot of swinging to do to get nine more wins, but that's the path that Volk is on. I can't say that about anybody else. I can't say it about anyone else. This is a very rare path. This is a very rare journey. And when you have some of the better names now in your rear view, things are starting to look real good for Alex Volkanovsky. Before I move on to Valentina and Nick Diaz, there were a couple of tweets sent out Saturday night that got us all fired up. 
and I think it's only right for Uncle Chael to step in and address it. So, talk about a dollar late and a day short, but Conor McGregor has decided to go after Volkanovski. Now, the only reason I say a dollar short and a day late is there was a time. There once was a time when Conor could make 145 pounds. There once was a time when Conor could contest for a world championship at 145 pounds. There once was a time when Conor McGregor could win a world championship at 145 pounds. Conor McGregor put out a slew of tweets. Conor McGregor then deleted one of the tweets. The tweet that was deleted was him pointing out the stature, five foot four, and muscle shark, and he, he pointed out some stuff about Volkanovski, said he would kick his head off, blah, 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 and deleted it. I don't believe that that was deleted just because it was a disgusting tweet. I get to the disgusting part. If you know the tweet, then you read what was gross about it. I don't think that's why he deleted it. I think he deleted it because in hindsight, he realized it's not a great look for a guy who fights at 170 part-time to be calling out a guy that's 30 pounds smaller. That's my guess. That's my guess. I've also been told by Connor's team in the past that he only deletes tweets because it gets people to talk about them more. I mean, if you guys aren't at home studying Conor McGregor, if you're just at home hating on Conor McGregor, if you're not studying him, I'm going to make a show today. Nobody else today will make a show that gets a quarter of the views as mine. I'm not trying to be a dick about this. I'm not shining my own wheels. In all fairness, I'm going to make a show today. 22 athletes fought over the weekend. 11 of them won. I'm going to talk about three of them. Oh, and one person who wasn't even there, not even in attendance. And that person is Conor McGregor. He found a way. He found a way to make himself interesting. He found a way to get people's attention. He found a I don't know who Volkanovsky has talked about, by the way. I heard Volkanovski say at the press conference, I might go up to 155 pounds. He did not say an opponent. He did not say Charles Oliveira. He didn't say anybody. He just said a weight class. It was interesting. Good for Volk. Now Volk is talking about Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor didn't just find a way to get me to talk about him. He found a way to be the only guy who the winner of the main event is talking about by name. There's something to see here. And it's not as lazy as some of you think it is. I've seen some fighters try to copy Conor McGregor, come out and put out a tweet that they think is going to be powerful. It absolutely bombs. They get 30, 40, they get 100 responses on Twitter. That's a big number for them. It's not the same thing as when Conor McGregor sets something down. Conor McGregor sets something down, walks away. A bomb goes off 15 minutes later. It's completely different. But how did he get to that point? How did he get to the point where he can say something at the end of a pay-per-view that he was no part of about a guy in a weight class that he doesn't compete in? Connor can even delete it, making it harder for the world to see, yet the world's still talking about it. I know the answer to all of these things. I give you a little sprinkle every day. Make sure you keep coming back. But I will give you a clue. If you sit there and you think that you've identified what works for Conor McGregor, but you can't go out and duplicate it, 
it means that you don't understand. A quick lesson of life, guys. If you're ever explaining something and you can't do it quickly and simply, it means you don't understand it well enough. Valentina Shevchenko, Lauren Murphy. Lauren Murphy had no chance. She had no chance before this fight started. As a matter of fact, there's not another woman that can get an unarmed combatant license that weighs 125 pounds that has a chance. Now, every great sports upset story starts with the narrative that I just laid out for you. And as much as we see in sport that anything can happen on any given night, and we actually more strongly know that that's the true statement. When you see somebody as dominant as Valentina Shevchenko, my goodness, you always default back and defer back to nobody can beat her. And right now, guys, you're going to have a very hard time making a compelling argument for me as to who it can be. As a matter of fact, Dana White was asked 10 minutes ago at the post-fight press conference, what's next for Valentina? And you want to know what Dana said? Ding, ding. Same thing he always says. Let's see what happens. Now, that can have various meanings. But when Dana said that tonight, let's see what happens means, I need to know, I don't want to tell all, at all times somebody who they're fighting. And I don't always want to be the decision maker to tell a whole division who the number one contender is. Sometimes I want to hear from you. You guys are in it. You guys are living it. I might be the one with the power, but you've got an opinion. So somebody get a hold of me. And I'm willing to predict for you now those phone calls those text messages those reaching out to the media those in the social media world that are calling out Valentina Shevchenko is a very small list and whoever does it first and whoever does it loudest that is your true number one contender forget about the resume forget about the records forget about the rankings and who beat who whoever comes and does this with the most sincerity in their tone will become the number one contender we saw that with Chris Cyborg. It's a very real thing where some athletes are so dominant and they have separated themselves so much. Now, two things about Valentina I want to bring up. First off, every beautiful thing I just said about her, she doesn't see. Nobody can beat her. Nobody can win around against her. Nobody can put her in a position she doesn't want to be in. She does not agree. That is reminiscent and evident of the fact that she's getting better. The story of tonight's fight was the takedowns from the body lock position to the passing of the guard. This is from who came in in Valentina as one of the most decorated female kickboxers of all time, the most decorated female kickboxer that, that is now doing MMA, is now winning fights on the ground. She is getting better. Why? How? If she's so damn good and knows it, why take the time to get better? If she knows nobody can touch her as I'm telling you that they can't, that nobody is even close, why is she so curious and why is she so coachable in the gym working on different things? She doesn't know it. The greats have a naiveness to them. The greats do not get complacent. The greats never think enough is enough. Ever. Even if there is a gap between her and the field, she is working to extend that gap. I, as a viewer, am observing it tonight in the form of body locks to a takedown to a passing of a guard, just by example. But I could also go back to her previous fight and the arm triangles and the one before that and the arm bar. She is getting better. It is a shocking thing to see. And the other dialogue going on with, with Shevchenko, and as a dialogue started by her, 
Okay, she doesn't agree with me, but I don't agree with her because she wants to go up and fight a man in newness. I don't agree with that. I don't. That doesn't feel right. I love it. I respect it. I love that competitor in her. She has fought Amanda twice. One time was a split decision. The people, including my broadcast partner, John Anik, believed Valentina should have rightfully won. Here's why I don't agree. Everybody has a number. Everybody has a weight class. Valentina, 125, that turns out to be her number. I don't think that she needs to risk it. I don't think that she needs to go up. I don't think that she needs to go find the hardest possible competition and put herself in a situation that is the most likely that she get beaten. I don't think she does. I think she can sit here and be the queen. 125 pounds. Every time they talk about fights, she'll get me back in there. You call me, tell me somebody, don't wait too long. I believe her. She is showing that. I don't think she needs to put herself in one of these spots, not to mention Amanda's plate's a little bit full right now, but I don't know that she needs to put herself in that spot. If Amanda and Valentina are going to fight again, then fight at Valentina's number, which is 125, which obviously Amanda would have no motivation to do. Amanda's not wrong here for not wanting to go and beat somebody she's already beaten not once but twice. Valentina, on the other hand, might be wrong. She might. Who's pressuring her to do this? Who's encouraging her to do this? That's not a mega fight, for one. Take all sorts of risks in this business. If there's something mega to do, you don't put yourself or your own career. Number one is the sport. The sport is not calling for that fight, Valentina. The sport and whoever is getting in your ear is the minority. I will speak for the sport. I will go check the numbers. I'll speak for the largest audience out there and my audience admires what you're doing at a weight class that you found, that you took over and that you were dominating. Enjoy your time at the top. It will go. This too shall pass, sadly, but this too shall pass. Don't speed it up and don't ever, Valentina, don't ever work against yourself. So that wraps up my thoughts on Saturday's title fight, which leaves the people's main event between Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler. Now, a lot of you are hating on Nick today, and coming up next, I'll tell you why that's wrong. But before that, here's a word about today's presenting sponsor, DraftKings. Week three of football is in the books, and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week four with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up, because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any week one game to receive $150 in free instant bets. If Sportsbook is not yet eligible in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grab all season long with their daily fantasy contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. What are you waiting for? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code CHAIL to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code CHAIL this week at DraftKings Sportsbook the official sports betting partner of the NFL. 
must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Nick Diaz, Robbie Lawler. Look, let's get into this, guys, because a lot is open for interpretation. Truly. Okay. Nick's walking to the ring. I mean, let's start right there because it's a very different looking Nick Diaz. What do you make of that? Can you remember this point of your life? Can you remember as you saw him walking to the ring? And I was in the arena live. Oh, my goodness, this place. I mean, they, what's the expression? They blew the roof off it. Nick gets in there. But there was no middle fingers. And there wasn't a single scowl look. And anytime an athlete has an approach, the approach is so important. When the approach is different than what you're used to, you ask yourself, as the viewer, you ask yourself, why? And what does this mean? Now, you only got a couple of minutes to get your bets on the table because Bruce Buffer is going to get the hell out of the way and we're going to find out. Now, the fight starts. Let's get the bad news out of the way. There was no feints. There was no footwork. There was no head movement by Nick Diaz. The other side of the coin, why do you need those things? You need those things for two reasons. One, so you don't get hit. He wasn't getting hit. He really wasn't. Lawler was coming at him with heat, with bad intentions, particularly early. Nick wasn't getting hit. Nick could see everything. Nick has what we call good eyes. He knows range. He knows distance. He knows how to roll. He doesn't need the big ducks. He doesn't need the big movements that a lot of fighters have. He can slip three inches and a punch will go by him. He can roll this way and maybe get hit but absorb it in a different way. Lawler's doing a great job. Lawler's digging to the body. Lawler's coming back up. Nick, eyes wide open, not even blinking. Knows right where he is. He's slipping and then Nick starts throwing back. Nick, death by a thousand cuts, right? That has been his philosophy and strategy from day one. The only thing that was different here is about 20 seconds went by in the contest before Nick threw that first punch. But once he started throwing, he started landing. And he was doing what Coach Clayton will call punches in bunches. Meaning Nick doesn't throw a shot. He doesn't throw a shot. No, if one can land, then the second can too. If the second can land, why isn't there a third? Nick starts digging to the body. Nick starts coming upstairs. Landing a body shot, guys, is extremely difficult. You do not see very many of them in all of MMA. I mean, if you think of like Jose Aldo, you think of Uriah Faber, like some guys that really go to the body, you could probably count them on one hand how many meaningful body shots you've seen, or at least how many competitors have thrown meaningful body shots. Very rare. And it's always off of a setup. Sometimes the setup is defensively. Guys coming at you, duck outside, turn it over and go to that liver. Maybe you throw a straight, you dip to the other side, you're coming to the kidney. Something happens though. Nick, lead body shot, extremely difficult to do. I bring that to you because as I'm putting him down for his flinches or lack thereof, for his head movement and footwork or lack thereof, he was still showing that he'd been in the gym, that he had worked on some skills. I've seen plenty of Nick Diaz body shots, as have you. I'm talking about a lead with no setup body shot. Very different. Improvement only comes from the gym, and he's protecting himself at all times. Now, Robbie Lawler, stubborn as all hell, comes out, makes us a stand-up fight. We predicted that. No surprise here. Robbie Lawler, to Robbie's credit, is pressing Nick forward. 
You take that out, you take the pressure forward of Robbie Lawler, you're going to have a very hard time deciding who won those uh, first two rounds that saw completion. You're going to have a very hard time. I suspect Robbie Lawler won both of those rounds. Those official scorecards will come out. I don't have access to that yet. I will predict for you all three judges gave it to Robbie Lawler. I will also just tell you, if Robbie wasn't walking Nick down, I'm not certain that he's winning those rounds. I mean, Nick was firing back as well. A little bit less power, but that's the way Nick fights. High accumulation. Nick was really getting some output. No clinch work, no knees, no elbows, very few kicks, though they did exist. We were seeing glimpses of Nick Diaz. We never once, in the walkout or in the fight, saw the eye of the tiger. There's an eye that Nick Diaz will put on his opponent. Nate will do the same thing. We didn't see that from Nick. But again, it's open for interpretation. There's many athletes who later in their career, or in this case in a comeback fight, have matured in such a way that it ends up being a positive. We don't know at this point. We don't know. And as they're going into the third round, I leaned to my partner Ryan and I said, the fight should be over in this round. Don't forget that. There's two fights taking place tonight. The standard fight that everybody else where a belt isn't on the line is going to contest, which is three rounds. This one's then going to have another fight, which is five rounds, and it's going to be interesting as the viewer to see, does the same guy win both of those? Does Robbie Lawler win a standard fight? Should it be stopped 15 minutes in? Does Nick Diaz find a way to come back and win tonight's fight, which is going to be contested over five rounds? It's, it's very different as you're watching this, just small things, but you can enjoy, and they're talking points. There are things to get you started. Why would Robbie Lawler not go for a takedown? Because he's a stubborn son of a bitch. I can't do anything about it. Robbie doesn't listen to me. He's never going to listen to me. And he wants to stand up with Nick Diaz. Why? Well, I think maybe Robbie had this one right. Only in hindsight, not in theory. In theory and in principle, I am right. Take Nick down. Robbie stood with him. So at one point, Nick, the end of the fight, takes a knee. Robbie throws an uppercut right to the face. Nick falls backwards. Robbie gives Nick a chance to continue. Tells him, get up. Steps away. The referee gives Nick a chance to continue. Talks to him. Go ahead and get up. Come towards your opponent. He's over there. Nick says, no, I'm done. This is the part where I'm telling you it's open for interpretation. I thought perhaps... Again, Nick goes down to a knee. Robbie throws an uppercut right to the face. I thought perhaps that uppercut went right on the nose and busted a guy's nose. If you've ever had your nose broken, it's a different kind of pain. There's a lot of things in fighting that can do damage. There's a lot of things that can stop the fight. There's much less things, believe it or not, that cause an actual pain. A broken nose is very, very painful. It would surprise me if Nick Diaz, of all people, couldn't deal with that pain, but I'm still trying to digest what I just saw. They show a replay. It looked as though, again, Nick's down on the knee. Robbie throws that final shot. It looked as though Nick slipped it. It still landed. It hit the face. I don't believe it hit and or broke the nose, and I also don't believe that is what caused the end of the fight. I believe Nick had already made that decision when he came down to the knee. Open for interpretation. Only Nick would know. In all fairness, even at this point in time, right, 30 minutes later, Nick may not remember. 
in all fairness, Nick may have already rewritten in his head. I believe my final analysis, Nick came to fight. Nick fought. Nick had enough. I don't have a problem with it. I don't. I've avoided one word, which is quit. I understand that Nick quit. I understand that officially when you verbally surrender, when the opponent is not near you, let alone touching you, I get it. I'm staying away from that word because a gentleman who's coming back after five years lost to be put in a situation where he's going to go five full rounds in the first place, I think is tough. I don't agree with it. I'm not a prude in the sport. I'm not. I just don't agree with that. I think it's because I'm in the five-round club. I think it's because how hard and how close I came to not making it in perfect shape, staying active, competing a regular schedule. It is an extremely unique thing. It's a unique thing. You could fight your entire career. You could fight a beautiful career where you get signed to the UFC. You get signed to Bellator. You're fighting these top organizations you're dreaming of, and you never make it to the spot on the card where you even have a five-round contract. Then to have that contract and actually see all 25 minutes, guys, it's very rare. It's a very rare club to be in. I do believe that this was mental. I don't suggest for you, and I don't want to say quit because I don't think Nick was hurt. I also don't believe Nick was exhausted, which is the number one reason somebody would quit in a fight. I think that Nick was more tired than Nick is used to being. And I think Nick saw the finish line as being very distant. Sports psychologists will refer to that as taking inventory. So for Nick to take inventory would look something like this. We've gone 10 minutes. I've lost all 10 minutes. We are now in the third round. I'm starting to lose this one. There's two rounds left. If I don't win those, why in the hell am I going to take 200 more punches? What's the point of that? Get frustrated. Stop. Could be a decision he instantly regrets. I don't know. I thought Nick was pretty cool. In all fairness, I did. He didn't scowl after the fact. He didn't middle finger after the fact. He didn't grab the microphone after the fact. He was very consistent. And he said one thing that stood out. And it's another reason that I, I, I really refuse to use the word quit. Even if that's what we say, I don't use the word. I think that he was in a very tough circumstance. I think that he represented himself very well, possibly better than he knew at the time. Those were very close rounds, very hard to judge. Some of the numbers even favored Nick. I think the pressure favored Robbie. I think the power favored Robbie. But things that perhaps in the moment Nick didn't know. And Nick said, I knew I had it coming. He said, I knew I had it coming. He did not finish the thought. There was no follow-up on the question. Nick, explain yourself. So again, open to interpretation. I believe I know exactly what it means. There is a price that you must pay to succeed in this sport. And when you are in the locker room, before you ever leave to put that walk in to place your mouthpiece and to step in the cage, you will ask yourself, did I pay that price? I know what the price is. Did I pay it? Do I deserve to win? No matter how hard Nick worked, no matter how disciplined Nick was, he removed himself from competition for five years, stepped into a five-round fight against a world champion. Look, that's a lot to ask of anybody. And when Nick said, I knew I had it coming, 
I believe that that was Nick answering the question, did I pay the price? Do I deserve this? Now Nick is in a unique spot. And it is very incumbent that Nick understand that he must define himself now before Dana does. And that definition needs to be, because there's a business side and there's a sports side, right? Nick has played that business side a very long time, but at some point, he was that competitor. He needs to get a hold of Dana and he needs to say, I know we have a contract, no games, nothing to talk about, let's honor the contract, but get me in there immediately. I had rust, I had fatigue, I had doubt. That's going to get worse if I separate. I am a competitor. He needs to remind Dana of this. I'm a competitor. I want to compete. Now, the next move is Nick's. But I am not looking at this night for Nick as a complete loss. I am seeing in here where it is an opportunity. But the move and the decision moving forward is on Nick. And the time is right now. Let's move away from UFC 266 and move on to another story that has dominated the headlines the last few days. Last Friday night, Las Vegas police arrested John Jones, and there's some new information about the case that's coming in, and as you might imagine, I've got some thoughts on it. So the John Jones situation, look, I firmly believe in a couple of things, probably in this order, innocent till proven guilty. Secondly, you do not kick a man when he is down. You give him a hand up. And that doesn't mean I don't plan to put him straight back on his ass later. But when he's down, you don't take a shot. The John Jones situation keeps evolving and developing. In this regard, new information is coming out. We have not heard John's side. And we may never. We have heard the side of the security guard who spoke to the fiance. We've heard the side of the police at this point who came forward and spoke about the vehicle. I'll get into that in just a moment. They're pretty in line. The stories are pretty in line. Two separate people, not associated, both told stories. Both those stories are fairly in line. And I remind you, this happened in a casino. A casino is a bank and there are cameras everywhere except in the bedrooms. So when and if that footage ever becomes publicly available, I don't know that it's going to answer all of the questions that we have. John Jones's night, according to these articles, looks something like this. He goes in, he gets his award at the Hall of Fame. They induct him into the Hall of Fame for almost losing to Alexander Gustafson. Looks pretty damn good. Did by my eyes. Right? He's talking about, hey, I'm going to wait. I'm going to put some size on. He's lifting full time. I saw muscles. I thought this was encouraging. I also saw what appeared to be a very happy John Jones. Was happy to be back in front of you guys. To be happy to be uh, included and re-immersed in a sport that he seemingly left. Looked like he was in a positive place. Comes back to the hotel room where his fiance and three of his many children are, and says, I'm gonna take $10,000, I'm gonna go to the club. Okay, out the door he goes. I can't get that deal myself. I couldn't get that deal, but nobody's complaining. Really not our place to pass judgment. This is what is said to have happened. 
grabs 10,000, goes out the door. That for me, I had questions on that going, I'm, I'm taking 10 grand. How, how much does he have? How much in cash did he bring? That would have nothing to do with this story. It'd be none of our business. It was just a red flag for me where I still go, hey, I'm going gr- to grab 10 grand and go to the club. All right. Out he goes, comes back around 5 a.m. Whatever happened in the room, the fiance and one of the three children who were present go downstairs to the security guard. Here's where we get the security guard's take. Security guard said, fiance was asking for a new room key. My guess on that is that John has now left the room and she's attempting to switch the keys so that he cannot get back in. That's my guess. But the words that were said were simply, may I have a new room key? She has a swollen and bloody lip. And the security guard says, ma'am, are you okay? It's at that point that the fiance breaks down in tears and says, I'm scared to go back to my room. The child who was there said to the security guard, will you call the police? That's heartbreaking. That is absolutely heartbreaking. So that's exactly what happens. And when the police come, they do not meet them in the lobby. The police come to the room. And in the room, the police say to the fiance, was this physical? And she says, no, she gives him the whole story. Look, he came you know, around, around 1 a.m. He comes, he grabs 10 grand to go to the club. He comes back roughly 5 a.m. And now here we are. And they say, did it get physical? And she says, no, well, not that physical. He did grab my hair, but he didn't hit me or anything like that. That's a quote per the article. The police then notice there is blood on the lip that they also deem to be swollen. There is blood on the nose. There is some blood on her clothing. And as they look closer on the bed, there's blood on the bed. So the police bring this up. They bring up the lip and the blood. Fiance says, we're in the desert. It's very dry, right? My lips, they're so chapped, they're so dry that they started bleeding. All right. So the police then launch into action to find John Jones, which probably looks something like going to the control room, find out where the cameras are, seeing what door he went out and going and grabbing him. And that's exactly what they did. So once they now have John in handcuffs, John says, how dare you arrest me? On the biggest night of my life, I was just inducted into the Hall of Fame. There is a lot on that. You were talking about a narcissist to the highest degree. And it is very rare in life that you're going to meet an actual sociopath. You'll hear that term throughout. He's a sociopath. You'll hear those terms. But an actual sociopath, by definition, it's very, very rare that you will ever actually meet one. So John is now in custody, and he also then decides to make a statement to the police, something along the lines of, I would be very curious if you took these cuffs off and you all fought me at the same time if I could beat all of you. He then headbutts the car. When he headbutts the car, it leaves, again a quote from the article, a medium-sized dent and chips the paint. That's relevant 
the last time I spoke about this, which is a topic that makes me very uncomfortable to start with, in all fairness. But I said to you guys, I can't touch the vehicle thing because I don't know what it means. It wasn't called vandalism. It wasn't called stealing of a vehicle. Anything that you could do to a vehicle that's a crime that I've ever heard of before, they it was something else. But now we know what it is. It does mean vandalism of a vehicle. When you have vandalism of a vehicle, to decide if that's going to be a misdemeanor or a felony, it comes down to the damage that was done to the vehicle in terms of a dollar amount to repair the vehicle. And I don't have those statutes in front of me, but $500 is a very good guess. Anything under 500 misdemeanor, anything over 500 can be a felony. So that's what the vehicle thing was. Now we know what that vehicle business was. John has always been a master of being Teflon and things just not sticking to him. He had fired a gun in public, reached right out his car door, fired the gun. They had the gun, they had the shell casing, they have on camera the bottle of tequila that he attempted to hide behind the passenger seat. And when all of that came about, I mean, this was like one of the fastest court cases you've ever read about in the media. And there was no mention of the gun charge. No mention whatsoever. Just went away. When you insult the police, when you damage police property, and when you inform them that you would like to see how you could do against all of them at once, you've now not made friends with the people that the DA will listen to when they decide how strong and hard I'm going to pursue this. In a general circumstance, even as recently as 24 hours ago, and I happen to see things on this that I, I'm not confident you guys did just because I was in Vegas and the local news covered it. They weren't great with information, certainly not the details that I just suggested for you now, but it did seem like a situation where misunderstanding, and we're probably not going to hear about it again. Now, that guess is changing rapidly now that we know there was a plethora of officers, I don't know the amount, that we now know we're wearing body cam, which has a mysterious way of always leaking into the public. So now that you've threatened an officer, you committed a crime, or at least he's accused of it, that's caught on camera, it's very tough. It's very tough to open that door to misunderstanding. Always hard to explain a misunderstanding that's documented with video. So where is that going to go? How does that pertain to John as it pertains to us? Us, the fan, us, the viewer, who's enjoyed John's career who's on board with the experiment of changing to heavyweight, who likes the idea that he take on Francis Ngannou or Surreal Gone. What's it mean for us? This is going to be one where we're going to have to stand back because we don't have the answers from a historical standpoint. Usually at this point in the UFC's career, they've about seen everything and have had to deal with about every single situation. Standard protocol says... Wait. See how this plays out. He is innocent until proven guilty. Wait until that happens before we open the door of a conversation of what should we do. Standardly, that's the way it would work. The reason I'm hesitant to assure you that's the way it's going to work, in, in line with all this new information, in line with a child being present and the child asking for the police. The optics of it are beyond bad. 
They're sad. They're sad. It's a heartbreaking story. And for the victim to attempt to cover would tell a reasonable person that there is a history of this, but this one even scared the child. Right? Just the optics are bad. They're bad. Why I'm not confident in telling you that the system's going to play out, and then we will revisit that, is this is the first time this situation has emerged since the UFC largely answers to the rules of a publicly traded company. There's not a situation, and I'll just throw Nike out there because they're right up the road from where I, I live in Portland. If Nike had an athlete, it would not matter in the least whether they were innocent or guilty. And you might think that that's uh, wildly unfair. All the same, it would not matter. If you were attached to a domestic disturbance, you were no longer a Nike athlete. And Nike is very clear that that's in the contract. They do not have to follow anything. The rules of the Constitution, due process, you make us look bad in any fashion, we're out of the business. Now, Nike largely does that because they're a publicly traded company, and just the rules and the sensitivity are very different. And the UFC, and Dana White specifically, has not been put in this position before since Endeavor went public. Okay. Does that matter? I, just It's part of the story. We all sit back and see BJ Penn had done a number of things that were not wonderful. But the first to admit that was BJ Penn. And BJ, who has a personal relationship with the organization, was able to say, guys, the one good thing I have in my life, which I will admit to you has spiraled in a couple of ways that I'm not proud of, but the one thing that I do have in terms of focus is I have this sport. If you take this from me, I can only imagine the slope that would put me on. Please consider not. Please believe in me just a little bit longer. I'm working hard. I'm fighting. I got, I got some demons over here. I think I can beat them. I know to do it, though. I need this. I need this focus. All right. All right. On a human level, okay. Let's do it. Let's get behind you. Let's get this cleaned up. Let's get this straightened out. Let's keep you focused. Going to have to move you to the undercard. Going to have to kind of change the way we promote it. But we got it. In a situation like BJ Penn's, where there was a lot of understanding and multiple chances given for that human element reason. BJ got into a dispute with a willful participant who was male. BJ was released from the organization and has never been mentioned again. Very tough, but this is what happened. BJ was in a physical altercation with another male who wanted the altercation, willful. Do you see the difference with this situation? As the story is currently being told, this was not another male. This was not willful. This was somebody who was asleep in a room with children who was woken up and now has a bloody lip a bloody nose, blood on the clothing, swelling in the face, and blood on the blankets. It's tough. This is tough stuff.
Many people will push Dana to cut ties with him instantly. You're doing that not to protect the image of the sport or the image of the UFC or because you morally and ethically think that's the correct thing to do. You're doing that to punish John Jones. You will hang your hat on all of those other arguments, but it's not why you're doing it. You want to punish John Jones. If John were beat released, I understand his value would diminish tremendously. His value is only worth whatever the market brings. If the biggest player goes out, your market comes down, all the same, you're back to being active. A bigger punishment in some ways is to keep him doing what he's doing right now. He does not have a sponsor to speak of. He does not have a paycheck of any kind coming in. He does not have an active license. He does not have a contract, something to look forward to. In some ways, if you're one of those negative people that just want to punish John, you may want to rethink this whole pressure on Dana to release him. Keeping him right where he is, freezing and or suspending the contract, but keeping him under contract keeps him unemployed. That's a damn big punishment. In all fairness, that's a damn big punishment. So my first, I would really encourage you, lay off Dana. Dana did nothing wrong. When I say Dana, the entire UFC, they did nothing wrong. They did something very nice. They put on a beautiful event. They welcomed him and recognized him. They've done everything right. So please don't turn the gun on them as they're trying to process this. But where does that go for John? I have never been in trouble with Clayton Hires. My coach, my trainer, my mentor, never once have I been in trouble save one. I yelled at my mom in between rounds in practice. She had the water. She was doing whatever. I was dying of thirst. When I asked for the water, I asked for it in a rude way. Not good. I'll leave it at that. That was not good. Does Jackson Wink step in? Right? If your name is Jackson or your last name is Wink, do you open the doors and allow this guy to come back to practice? How far does that go? And you may even be completely innocent in a situation, but if a situation keeps following you around, there is a precedence where people, you're not welcome here. I'll just use car insurance by example. If you go out and you get hit three times, in every single one of those, it was not your fault. And that is absolutely determined. The insurance company is still going to cut you and they're going to say, look, if this is the kind of person that has these kinds of things following him. We don't care who's at fault. If this is what in this person's world consistently, we're out. We're going to have to go work with somebody else. And in most walks of life, when you have optics that are this troubling, look, the only person in this whole situation who has gotten the disaster that has been John Jones's behavior right is Malky. Malky not only cut ties with John as a client, he publicly cut ties. Malky had no damn reason to tell the world in a press release that he no longer reps John Jones. Well, yeah, he did. Yes, he did. Malky wanted that known that there are repercussions. It's not anything goes, and the almighty dollar doesn't drive my organization. I did not understand that at the time. I now do understand that. And the only person who's got anything right as it pertains to John was Malky seeing this train wreck a year ago and getting the hell off the tracks. It's a tough spot.
because we're still facing innocent until proven guilty, right? But we now have a narcissist who thought he should be able to do whatever he wants to do, including violating the law, who told police officers on camera how dare them arrest him on the biggest night of his life. That's a problem. This story has a lot of problems. That is near the top of the list. And I can recall a time that John was trying to get his license back. He had come off a suspension. He had to go before the commission in California. And the commissioner in California told him, I'm going to vote yes. I'm going to give you your license back. But man to man, I need you to accept responsibility. You're not only in a position where you could hurt somebody else, you're stealing their dreams. You're stealing a victory from them. This is very bad what you're doing to other people. Commissioner laid out John's response, of which John did not need one. He was not asked a question. John's response, yeah, and it can affect your legacy. And the commissioner comes right over the top of him and goes, no, see, that's what I'm talking about. You're still talking about you. You're talking about your legacy. I'm talking about how it affects other people. And the look on John's face, he didn't have the foggiest idea what this man was speaking of. He had no idea why it would possibly matter or what language was even being said to him when the guy told him this isn't all about you. He was generally confused. Now here we are years later with an officer following up, doing his job, has done nothing more but detain a man, and he's telling them, you don't have the right to do your job following the law and not let me get away with X, Y, and Z when this is my night. It's not a crime to be a dick. It's not a crime to be selfish. But in the court of public opinion, where the organization now sits in a much higher degree than it ever has, the answer and the resolution to this is not as clear as we may suspect. The story is ongoing. Let's hope it gets resolved quickly. And for now, let's leave it at that. All right, guys, that is it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor. Head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, and leave a review like our friend Stu, who says, I've listened since day one. Never missed an episode. Well, thanks, Stu. And thanks to all of you guys. I will be back for another episode on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.